you closed your Bibles, would you open them again to 2 Kings chapter 4 and verses 1 through 7. Another incident, another event uh, from the life of Elisha, the title of the sermon, A Widow Indeed, A Widow in Need, A Widow Supply. One friend of mine, as he preached from this text, said, Elisha, who recently rescued three armies, that was in previous chapter, Elisha, who recently rescued three armies, here rescues a lone widow. From the greater to the lesser, maybe, I'm not sure that's actually true, because it reflects God's tender love and care, not only for humanity or for men and women and boys and girls, kind of in mass, but also for individuals as well. The Puritan Matthew Henry wrote, Elisha's miracles were for use, not for show. This recorded here was an act of real charity. Such also were the miracles of Christ, not only great wonders, but great favors to those for whom they were wrought. God magnifies his goodness with his power. In a very real sense, we are prepared for a miracle like this if we're working backwards from the New Testament to the Old Testament because for many of us, we spent far more time reading perhaps in the New Testament and we've seen something of the miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this particular chapter, we'll see a series of them and I'll come to that in just a moment or two, but we certainly see a whole series of miracles as we read of Christ as of Christ as we read through the gospels and in fact in one case in Mark chapter 5 we have uh, a miracle sandwiched uh, between another miracle in other words a miracle begins and then there's another miracle and then the miracle, the first one, is actually finished. And that's, of course, with Jairus' daughter and uh, the woman with an issue of blood. And so we're, we're sort of prepared to some degree for the Lord working through this prophet, Elisha, in terms of one event after another. In fact, here in chapter 4 through chapter 6, we discover Elisha's ministry in which the Lord is triumphant in at least five different ways. He is triumphant over debt. He's triumphant over death. He's triumphant over drought. Two episodes in the latter part of this chapter, chapter 4. He is triumphant over disease, and he's also triumphant over 
difficulty. And so there's this kind of sustained argument with regard to five different issues in the chapter, demonstrating once again that the Lord is triumphant. Now, these events, this series of events, not every one of the events is given to us in great detail. Some of them are rather fragmentary, and in a sense, we discover some, something of the fragmentary nature in these first seven verses. Some writers have referred to the, the stinginess of the text, that is, the scarcity of information, and yet enough for us to come to understand and appreciate the triumphant character and the triumphant working of God himself. Here is a text that would have been encouraging to those who would have heard it in the day and those who would have heard it read to them in subsequent generations. The book was probably compiled, though, of course, the accounts occurred much earlier, but the book was perhaps compiled, that is, First and Second Kings, originally one book, but First and Second Kings during the Babylonian captivity to encourage the people of God in captivity that God was still their God and would act on their behalf. And so God reveals to his beloved people, he reveals to his remnant people that he is their reward and he is the one and the one alone who restores them. As he helps a widow out of debt and in great distress, what we ultimately, eventually, and truly see is the working of God himself on behalf of this widow and her sons. So we want to notice three things from the text this morning. First of all, notice the woman's destitution. She is truly destitute. We discover her want, that is, her lack, her condition, and a very detailed description uh, given the day in which she lived. It's detailed, and yet again, as we said before, somewhat fragmentary. We don't know her name. We don't know anything at all about this woman. She is presented to us in anonymity without identifying her. She's nameless, and that might make us um, uh, not know enough to feel sorry for her. And yet I think that's actually not the case, that if we understand the background uh, of her condition, we, we truly will feel for her situation. Her status was, as you know, that she was a widow. And in the day in which he, she lived, there was no social safety net. There was no welfare, no social security, there was no funding from anyone. 
person in that condition would be dependent upon family, if she had any, upon relatives or even friends, but it appeared as if she was left completely destitute. Her husband had been a godly man. The text tells us that he feared God. And he was a man marked by integrity in a time of apostasy. That was his reputation. He probably was persecuted, oppressed, and perhaps even died as a result of his faith. We don't, we don't know. Again, that's where the, the scarcity of the text comes uh, into play. You remember in 1 Kings chapter 18, under the reign of Ahab and Jezebel, that a man by the name of Obadiah hid a uh, hundred prophets in two different places in, in a cave. Elsewhere, we read that there were 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. And this must have been one of those prophets who was a faithful man and who died prematurely, it would appear, and left a widow and two sons. All she had to support her were her two sons, and we don't even know how old they were. They were her lifeline, and it would appear as if they were able to do very, very little. And as a result of her condition as a widow with two sons, she owed an enormous debt. She possessed a substantial debt. She was vulnerable, penniless, insolvent. And there was absolutely nothing she could do to improve that except through industry and ingenuity um, if she had the ability or had the resources to pursue that. And her, sa her sadness was complicated by the fact that she faced another loss, and that was the loss of her sons. It would have been slavery for them, that is, the creditor would have come and taken them and pressed them into slavery. It was common in the day to do that. In fact, even in subsequent generations, in our own Western civilization, there were what was known as debtors' prisons which really made no sense if you think about it. So you come and you take the householder, the breadwinner, who owes an enormous debt, and you put him into prison until he can pay the debt. Now, the obvious question is, how can he pay the debt if he's in prison? He can't work. Outside prison, that is. And, uh, but that's what this widow faced. We don't know if he charged her interest, and that's why she was in some difficulty. It was common in the day throughout the Middle East to charge anywhere from 20 to 50% um, interest. Imagine how difficult it would be to repay um, a debt. And so she faced the loss of her 
sons. Alfred Edersheim said, quoting David's prayer elsewhere in the Old Testament, King David, let us fall into the hands of God. Let me not fall into the hands of men. And that certainly is appropriate in the context here. Again, this wife was, well, the wife rather was uh, the wife of one of the sons of the prophets. And again, remember how difficult this day was. It was a day that was marked by idolatry, a day that was marked by heterodoxy. Um, Ahab and Jezebel had a son, Jehoram, who was a little better than the parents, but not completely. He was loyal as a servant of God. And yet you might well raise the question, and perhaps she might have raised the question. Does not faithful service deserve something in return? Many professing believers have raised that question through the years. I've, all I've ever done is serve Christ. And this is the end result. And this is what I'm facing. That just doesn't seem fair. Don't we deserve better than that? And shouldn't we expect immunity from loss? But she doesn't approach the matter that way. Her set of circumstances don't set her upon complaining to God. Rather, hers is a faithful desperation. She remains faithful throughout. She's marked by faith. Notice what she does. Where does she go? She goes to Elisha. She appeals to the prophet. And she addresses him. And notice how she addresses him. She addresses him by mentioning her problem. She doesn't offer him a solution. Much as we might. Lord, these are my circumstances. And this is what you can do. Or this is what you must do to resolve the situation. There's nothing like that in her case at all. She goes to the right person, presents her problem, because God himself can be trusted to meet her need. And that's the faith of this woman. And it would have been the faith, undoubtedly, from that home. One of the sons of the prophets. One of 7,000 who would not bow the knee to Baal. Perhaps one of the, of the 100 that had been hidden in two companies by Obadiah. Hers is a desperate situation, but it's a faithful desperation as she retains and remains faithful. Spurgeon said on uh, this text, he said, the best of men may die in poverty. We must not hastily censure those who leave their families unprovided for. Circumstances may have rendered it impossible for the breadwinner 
to do more than supply the pressing wants of the hour. What he's saying is it may mean that this prophet had no more resources than just to buy enough bread from day to day. Yet assuredly, it is sad to see the widow of such a worthy man in such straits. Tugs at our heartstrings is what he's saying. A widow and the widow of a prophet of our Lord, our concern for her is tender. And so her situation is desperate, but she does not lose faith in her set of circumstances. And so we notice, secondly, her desperation. Not only her, a description of her destitution, but her desperation. Her wherewithal, we've discovered something of her want, now of her wherewithal and what it is that she has. Well, undoubtedly, the most significant thing that she has is the prophet, Elisha. And she goes to him and she explains her situation, as I've mentioned, and he says to her, what can I do for her, uh, for you? Now, I suppose we could read that in several different ways. But the context would seem to suggest that he's not being critical of her. In fact, he goes on to say, what do you have? The very first thing that he says to her, before he even seeks to meet her need, if he's so inclined to do so, is, what are the resources that you have? Take inventory. What's in the cupboard? What is it that you can do? Use what you have. Begin there. To use what you have. Can't help but think of Mark chapter 6. <laughs> and Jesus um, has uh, gone out into the wilderness and a bunch of folks have followed him and uh, he, he preaches to them and he preaches long and the day has been long and now they're hungry and uh, tells the disciples to feed them and they say with what and the very first thing he says is well what do you have so we got five loaves and two fishes well that's enough and of course, as you know, becomes enough because he multiplies the loaves and the fishes. But he goes on and say, take what you have, which is this pot or cruise of oil, and borrow as many containers as you can. And so she and her sons go out to borrow all of these pots or containers and then closets herself in her home. The neighbors would have known something was going on because they're borrowing all of these containers. But what was to take place was not the object of public gaze. 
She shut herself in with God as the miracle took place. No oil was brought in, but rather the oil in this small pot was multiplied. Dale Ralph Davis puts it this way. He says, at any rate, some of God's work is not for public consumption, not for the Christian tabloids. And we need to ask ourselves with our various Christian testimonies if we are magnifying God or stroking ourselves. All too often, we're ready to publish our story, and there may be a place for that. But I think Davis is right when he says, with our various Christian testimonies, we need to ask ourselves, are we truly magnifying God or just stroking ourselves? And here was a woman and her sons who closeted herself away in order to see God at work. Here is conformity, obedience to what the prophet has asked her to do, what the prophet has commanded her to do. Here is her agreement, which at the end of the day builds her faith in God himself. Here is the arrangement. She fills pot after pot after pot from, from this little amount of oil that she has. Now some critics have argued that the woman should have collected more pots because when they ran out of these containers, the oil stopped. And there are critics who have said, well, she should have kept collecting more and more and more and more containers. But I don't think that's the point of the story. She filled what she had, and what she had was enough. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. It was exactly what she needed. The Anglican Puritan Joseph Hall wrote, God gives according to our capacity. Could we hold more? He would give more. So he's not critical. And then the 18th century Calvinistic Baptist John Gill said, there was no necessity of continuing the miracle. The oil may be an emblem of grace that flows from the fullness of it in Christ to which it is compared, which will be always flowing as long as there is a vessel of salvation or faith in any to receive it. It requires a vessel, and we who believe are those vessels that receive the oil of God's mercy. And so we see a description of this woman and her condition. 
we see her desperation. What do you have? All I have is this little jar of oil. And now notice thirdly and finally in verse 7, the woman's devotion. Her wealth, her want, that is what she needed, her wherewithal, that is what was it that she had, and now her wealth. All of these pots of oil. Now notice her devotion, first of all, was to the prophet. He's referred to as a man of God, which again is code for someone who has been tapped to minister the word of God. It's used throughout the Old Testament. Elijah was a man of God. Elisha is a man of God. Moses was a man of God. And as we come to the New Testament, even Timothy is referred to as a man of God. As we think of the term in the Old Testament, it's found 76 times in the Old Testament and 55 times in reference to Elisha. I think that's significant. There's something there um, about Elisha's importance. And so she's committed as the wife of one of the sons of the prophets. She's committed to the work of prophecy, which required a prophet. But beyond that, she's committed to the prophecy itself. Not merely to the man. The man is only important as he proclaims the word of God. And so she listens to what he has to say, and she obeys what he has to say because of her commitment to the word of God. And there's the significance and the importance of this woman. Her devotion was not merely to external things, but rather to God himself and the word of God as it came to her, in this case, through the prophet. And therein lies her importance for us. When we encounter difficulty and trial, indebtedness, whether it's financial or otherwise, and we'll come to more of that in just a moment, where do we turn? We turn here and we turn there and we turn somewhere else and it doesn't work. But here's a woman, a woman who is important because of where she turns. She turns to God and the word of the, uh, and the, word of the prophet. And what is it that the prophet tells her? The prophet tells her, first of all, to sell the oil and to earn some money to make a profit. And then pay. Pay your creditor, the one to whom you owe your debt. First of all, before you do anything else, before you buy anything else, before you pay for anything else, pay your debt. Notice that she returned the borrowed vessels as well as the oil. 
and then live on the rest. And there will be enough. As we think of this in spiritual terms, in terms of God's mercy to us, Romans chapter 5 and verse 10, for example, we have a whole list of things that come to us as a result of God's saving act in the work of justification on account of Christ alone through faith in Him alone. Super abundance. So sell and then pay the one to whom you owe this debt. As Tom Lyon has written or preached, it is not becoming for us to be in arrears to creditors. Matthew Henry wrote and preached, we cannot reckon anything really nor comfortably our own but what is so when all our debts are paid. And Joseph Hall, the Puritan, wrote, Virtue and goodness can pay no debts. Again, Joseph Hall, none of the oil was hers till her creditors were satisfied. All was hers that remained. It is but stealth to enjoy a borrowed substance. While she had nothing, it was no sin to owe. But when once her vessels were full, she could not have been guiltless if she had not paid before she stored. And that's a helpful citation or quotation. Let me read it again. None of the oil was hers, till her creditors were satisfied. All was hers that remained. It is but stealth to enjoy a borrowed substance. While she had nothing, it was no sin to owe. But when once her vessels were full, she could not have been guiltless if she had not paid before she stored. It was not a sin on her part to owe her creditors, given the circumstances of her life. It was not a sin for her to be in that set of circumstances. But once her ship had come sailing in, to borrow a rather common expression, or at least it used to be, and she had some resources, then it would have been a sin not to first of all pay what she owed. Well, I want to leave you with a few thoughts as we bring this to some conclusion. And I said it earlier, but it's a place for us to begin. When facing a crisis, where do you turn? You need to think about that. And you need to think seriously about it. Without goods, she goes to God. And it's not that there's 
Well, in a sense, there's no other place to go, but it's also the best place to go. One writer has said the surpassing demand which they faced had been met by a sufficient resource, and the resource was God himself. When you face a need, what, whatever it might be, don't begin everywhere and then go to God. But go to him first of all. And he might say to you, well, what do you have? What do you have to work with? As Elijah did. But it's not that he is indifferent or without a care for your condition. In fact, Psalm 40 and verse 17, and we read part of uh, uh, Psalm 40 this morning is our call to worship. But Psalm 40 in verse 17 records these words of the psalmist. I am poor and needy, but the Lord thinketh on me. God is not indifferent. And God is not being careless toward you. In a crisis, whatever the crisis might be, remember to turn to him and appeal to him and trust his word. Now secondly, and, and, and related to that, we've spoken of being in a crisis. Well, who is in a crisis? Well, most of us at one time or another, and perhaps we might say most of us much of the time, and by that I mean that the passage applies to more than just a financial need. If you are low in the circumstances of life, whatever those circumstances might be, you're in good company. Crushing demands are common. It may be finances. It may be something you experience at work. It may be at home, maybe in your community. There, there may be all kinds of crushing demands. Again, Joseph Hall wrote, the holiest man may uh, uh, be deep in arrearages, meaning lacking, an older word. The holiest man may be deep in arrearages and break the bank. Not through lavishness and riot of expenses, religion teaches us to moderate our hands, to spend within the proportion of our estate, but through either iniquity of times or evil casualties. In other words, the day, the economy, as we think and pray of our friends in Cuba, for example, they are in difficult circumstances, but it's not because that they've missed or abused, misused or abused their finances. The economy is a wreck. Or what Hall calls evil casualties, the, the providence of God, the things that we 
encounter by way of, say, illness or some other thing. The holiest man may be deep in arrearages. It's not sin to face difficulty. Joseph Hall also said this, and I think it's important that we remember this, that holiness is no more defense against debt than against death. Holiness is no defense necessarily unless we squander our resources. He goes on to say grace can keep us from unthriftiness but not from want. Thirdly, providence extends to small problems as well as to large ones. Problems may be loom large or even very small. In either case, the solution is not to focus upon the problem but to focus upon what we might call the prophecy that is the word of God. And that's difficult to learn, is it not? The solution is not to focus upon the problem, but upon what God says in his word. As the psalmist said, I am poor and needy, but the Lord thinketh on me. Roger Ellsworth says, no matter what your trial, you can and must pour the soothing oil of God's word into the empty vessel of your life. Yes, pour and keep pouring. Or as Dale Ralph Davis says, in that very simple way he has of writing, God's desperate people matter to him. Beloved, remember that. God's desperate people matter to him. Now finally, remember this. That whatever your circumstances in life and whatever desperate set of circumstances you face, whether it's financial or something else, Remember that no matter who you are, you do have a debt. And your debt is a crushing debt. It is a crushing debt that you cannot pay, you have not paid, and you will not pay it. It is greater than any other debt that you might owe. Your sin is an enormous debt that you cannot pay and you are enslaved to it. You're not about to be sold into debt. You've already become a bond slave to sin. 
But there is one who has paid that debt. There is one who has paid the debt for all who believe upon him, who believe that word of grace that has come to us through the gospel. Some texts are harder to see the gospel. They just are. But this one is not a difficult one. Not at all. Here is the gospel, plain and simple and ready to see. Your debt is worse than the debt that this woman possesses. It's, an, it's a debt that will send you into an eternity of pain and suffering. Not just for the moment, but for eternity. Without Christ. Without the gospel. He is the only one who has paid the high price to discharge the debt of guilty sinners. That pot of oil became a sufficient resource for this woman to pour, to sell, and to live on the rest. And here is the greatest resource of all to settle the terms of our eternal debt, our sinful debt. It is Christ. Ray Dillard in his faith in the face of apostasy wrote, the greatest debt we all have is the mortgage on our souls. It is a debt we cannot pay, but God can pay it. It was paid by giving his own son as a ransom for our souls. Here is a text that calls us to believe. Here is a, a text that calls us to receive, to receive the merits of the only one who can cancel that eternal debt. Do you believe? Have you received the Lord Jesus Christ to cover and to do away with all of your sins and then to live on the benefits that come to you from the salvation which he has bestowed upon his people. This is a great text. You can go anywhere and preach this text. You can go anywhere and testify from this text about Christ. May Christ be preeminent in the lives of each and every one of us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do turn to you thanking you for this very simple, simple text. While on the surface would seem to have nothing to do with New Testament doctrine having to, 
concerning Christ. And yet, as we've come to see, it has everything to do with that. May we know what it is to receive and to believe and to find rest for our souls. Oh God, we pray, touch the hearts of all who hear, not only in this room now, but also who hear by way of sermon audio, that they might hear, truly believe. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.